you can grab a seat. Good morning, Redemption Hill Church. It's good to see you today, those in person and those joining us online. Uh, let me encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn those on or flip to Esther chapter 4. Uh, many of you may have been expecting to see Pastor Tanner today, and you'll notice that he's not with us today. Uh, this past week, Marsha's grandmother passed away, and so uh, they're traveling to be with Marsha's family um, and so, therefore, you guys get me um, again. But, man, I'm, I'm as eager as I have been the first two sermons to share God's Word with you today. Well, hey, as we jump in, uh, let me ask you this. How many of you like watching movies that depict the end of the world? Um, we got any hands here? And I know we got a few here. Some may come to mind. I'm going to date myself here a little bit. Um, Armageddon, Anyone? Okay, I see. Yeah, there we go. Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, um, Liv Tyler. You've got a large asteroid that's going to come and destroy the Earth. Maybe Deep Impact? No, Deep Impact. Um, Independence Day with Will Smith. You've got an alien invasion. That, um, or maybe one more recent, um, Contagion, um, where you've got a virus that is spreading. Um, all of these movies, at some point, there's a critical, like, component and moment where like this news becomes public like it goes from just like being behind the scenes to like the public being made where and and they suck you in and they leave you wrestling with this question how would you respond we find ourselves facing a similar situation today when we come to Esther chapter 4 we saw last week uh, where Mordecai thwarted an assassination attempt. He hears about two guys that were going to wanted to kill the king, and he thwarts it. He tells Queen Esther, and she tells the king, and, and those guys um, are, are killed by the king. But then what happens is Mordecai's not promoted. He's not rewarded. In fact, his enemy, Haman, is promoted, and Mordecai refuses to pay homage to him and worship him and, and bow the knee. And so Haman chooses and decides not to just take out Mordecai, but he says, we're going to wipe out and annihilate all the Jews in the empire. And so when we come to chapter four today, this news has spread among the entire kingdom. And so it's sucking us in and asking us the same question. We're going to see how the Jews responded, but God's also got a word for each of us today. And so let's go to Esther 4, um, and, and let's look here um, at what happens. And you'll notice when we come to chapter 4, I've been spending a good bit of my time highlighting the providence of God. As you guys remember, like we don't see God's Word, His name, anywhere in Esther. And, and, and this series is called Invisibly Present. It's about how God is invisibly present in all of the even ordinary events of our life, providentially working to fulfill his plan and promise. Today, what I want us to see here is that God's providence doesn't undermine human responsibility. And we're going to see that in how God, in how Esther and Mordecai respond in the passage today. So let's start reading here in Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The word of God says this When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes 
and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what do we see here? We see here that this news has spread. In fact, Mordecai, it's almost as if Mordecai wasn't privy to the conversations that Haman had with the king. He's finding this news out about not only his actions against Haman, but how now Haman is taking that out against all of the Jews. And so we see what does Mordecai do? It says he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. His response here, if if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is a familiar response that you see throughout the Old Testament, particularly when there is brokenness that's happening on the inside. Sackcloth would have been made of goat's hair. It would have been very uncomfortable to wear. This ashes, it's signifying dissolution, dissolution and ruin. And not only Mordecai, though. What do we see here? It says here in, in, um, in, in verse 3, it says, And in every province, wherever the, the decree had reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. So across the entire empire, Mordecai's mourning, he's broken, he's devastated. He comes to the king's gate. Let me ask you this. When it says here that he cried out loud with a loud and bitter cry, who was he crying out to? Again, we probably read that and and we're assuming like, He's crying out to God. In fact, like I see in this, like the echoes of lament that Tanner took us through in Psalm 13. You've got David. I I can see Mordecai. God, like, do you see what's going on to your people? How long will we have to face this disaster? How long will, will our enemies continue to prevail? Mordecai knows that he can't keep silent that he's got to do something. So he goes to the king's gate. Why does he go to the king's gate? Well, my guess is he's trying to get word to Esther. Now, we're going to pick that up here in a second. Um, But it's hard to imagine, even though God is not mentioned here, that Mordecai and the Jews were not calling upon God with their mourning, with their weeping. It says here that there was fasting. Now, typically, when you hear about fasting, what do you all always hear about? You fast and you you pray. There, there's no mention of praying here, but you've got to know, like God's people were calling upon God in prayer. They were fasting. They were praying. And and when Tanner taught us about lament, does anybody remember the framework that he gave us? He quoted he quoted one author who said, "Lament is prayer and pain that leads to trust." And so this is what Tanner they said. You bring your pain to God in prayer. You make bold requests for restoration while expressing quiet and patient trust in God's faithfulness. 
I see that echoed here. That they're bringing their pain before God. We're not told God explicitly, but there's lament, there's brokenness, and yet it seems like as we continue to read, there's going to be a quiet trust and patient trust in God's faithfulness. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. So what happens? It says, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And so Mordecai's response actually gets the attention of the queen. And so what does is, what is Queen Esther do? She sends clothes down for him. She sends garments to clothes him. She, in other words, like she sees that Mordecai's in sackcloth and ashes, and, and she's wanting to, it says she's deeply distressed. She wants to care for him. There's compassion for him. And yet she doesn't seem to ask why he's so upset. And so we keep reading, verse 5. It says, Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him in the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he may show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. What does this show us? It becomes apparent that Esther seems to be oblivious to why Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. Let me ask you this. How is it that every Jew in the empire, in the whole empire, is mourning, is weeping, is fasting, and the queen is clueless? Had life in the palace isolated her from her own people? Had life in the palace made her callous to their needs? Had life in the palace led her to forget where she had come from? We're not told answers to these questions. So what does Esther do? She sends Hathak to get the scoop. And what does Mordecai do? Mordecai tells him everything. In addition to sending a decree for proof, in, in, in case like Esther, like here's the official decree that you can read for yourself. And then he makes a request of Esther. What does he ask Esther to do? Look back at verse 9. Actually, verse 8. He says, And command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of the people. So Hathak, Hathak returns and shares with Esther all that Mordecai had shared with him. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, it says, Then Esther spoke to Hathak, 
and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. What does Esther do? Esther makes it extremely clear what's at stake here. You see Mordecai saying, hey, hey, Esther, like you're the queen. Like go talk to your husband and tell him not to kill your people. And Esther replies to Mordecai and says, Mordecai, do you realize what you're asking? And here's what she says. First of all, she just clarifies, hey, Mordecai, you know this. Only the seven men who are the advisors of the king, we saw that in chapter one, could go before the face uncalled, like without being, without being invited. Anybody else, he says, there's one law. Anybody who goes before the king who's uninvited faces death unless there's one exception. The king holds out the golden scepter and he spares your life. And so Esther's basically saying here, Mordecai, you're telling me to go plead before the king. And hey, by the way, I actually haven't even seen the king in over 30 days. What's she alluding to here? Well, we're not told why she hadn't seen the king, but I can promise you this. The king has not been sleeping alone for 30 days. At this point, Esther had been married to the king for roughly five years. What's being hinted at here is that it seems as if the king's affections for the queen have been cooling. I mean, why else would it be that his own wife hasn't seen him for 30 days? Maybe there's another explanation, but what Esther's response is alluding to is, hey, Mordecai, I don't expect a favorable response. I haven't seen the king recently. I'm not sure when I'm going to be before the king. And even if I were to go before the king, I don't anticipate he would extend the golden scepter to spare my life. One commentator puts it this way. Esther's basically saying it would be suicide to go before the king and Mordecai, you know it. So how does Mordecai respond? Look at verse 13. Actually, verse 12, and it says, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this we've now arrived to what I would call the key verse. 
in the entire book of Esther, verse 14. And there's a lot to unpack here. So, so let's walk through this first. In verse 13, what does Mordecai say? First, he says, don't think that, in other words, don't think that just because you're the queen, that you will escape any more than the other Jews. In other words, he's saying, Esther, if you don't do something, you're going to die just like the rest of us. But he continues. Second, he says, even if you choose, another, he's saying, if you choose to remain silent, look at verse 14. If you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Wow, do you hear that? Look, God is still not mentioned anywhere here, but it's hard not to read this as a reference to Mordecai's trust in God's faithfulness to save his people. He basically says, Esther, you can remain silent, but my God is going to provide and save us somehow. I don't know how, but I know he's going to save us. It's his confident trust and hope. What we see here, Mordecai, his hope is on God. Like all of it. He's putting all of his chips in saying, this is my God. He will provide. And you know what? This is what faith looks like. Faith isn't knowing the end of the story and going in. Like faith is taking steps when you don't know the end of the story. You don't have eyes to see how it's all going to play out. That is faith. That, that is the life of faith. We see it over and over throughout the scriptures. Examples where God's teaching us that no matter how impossible something may seem, he's calling us to walk in faith. And now let me make something clear here. What's happening isn't like, is God going to save the people or Esther going to save the people? That's not what Mordecai is getting at. God is going to save the people. The question is, is, he, is it going to be through Esther or is it going to be through another place? We're not pitting Esther and God against each other. God is the one working. We're just, the question now is which human agency is God going to use to save his people? But he continues. And the third thing I want to pull out here in these texts, he says, but you and your father's house will perish if you remain silent. What, what is he getting at here? If you remain silent, you and your father's house. There have been a, a few possible explanations for this. One, which I don't think is the case, is that Mordecai's threatening to take things into his own hands and to go kill Esther himself. I don't think that's the case, but that's one possibility. Another one is that Mordecai's threatening to reveal her identity as a Jew. Or third, which I think is probably more likely, is that Mordecai's suggesting that Esther and her family will be punished presumably by God, for her refusal to act and how God has put her in this place. Either way, here's the point, and in, in Kieran Jobes, one commentator says this way, in Mordecai's thinking, Esther, Esther's life may be in jeopardy if she goes to the king uninvited, but doom is certain if she does not. Did you hear that? Like, if she doesn't go before the king, doom is certain. But if you go before the king, at least there's a chance. 
And then we come to this famous quote that probably most of us think of when we think of Esther. And it's when Mordecai says this, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Combined with Mordecai's previous statement, what we see here is the strongest hint in this book of of Mordecai's belief in divine providence. I mean, you hear what he's saying here. He's saying, Esther, like, do you not see what's happening here? God's favor has been upon your life. And no matter how you got here, no matter how immoral things that brought you to the point, the point is, is God's been working and you're here for the very reason to save the Jews. There's a larger purpose beyond all that has happened to place Esther in this position. And so given this, he's pleading with Esther. He's saying, hey, Esther, God's going to save his people. Go align yourself with God. He's placed you as the queen for this very reason, for this very purpose. Align yourself with, with the invisibly present God. So how does Esther respond? Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Yes! Let's go, Esther! What we see here is a huge transformation taking place in her life. Esther now is going to be turning from a queen who was continually receiving commands from Mordecai to now she's the one giving commands. She's the one telling Mordecai, go, gather. In fact, we don't hear Esther receiving another command from Mordecai the rest of the book. She's the one that's now in charge. She's rejecting passivity. She's acting on the place that God has given her, and she is the one giving commands. What does she say to do? She says in verse 16, go gather all the Jews and hold a fast, and I and my women, we're also going to fast just as you do. Three days, night and day, no drink and no food. The response here is different than verses one and three, one through three. The response in verses one through three was, was born out of like grief and brokenness of like, man, we're facing destruction. The response here is, man, we're going to go before our God and we're going to plead with him. Again, God isn't mentioned, but there's no way to like read this text and not hear Esther saying, I'm going to go before my God and we're going to call upon him and we're going to fast and we're going to ask him to move. If you were to compare this with other places in Scripture, you could go to Ezra chapter 9 and see how Ezra responded with a similar kind of fast. You could go to Nehemiah chapter 1 
and it's explicit. They're fasting and they're calling upon God to move. This is the strongest indication yet of Esther's faith in God. You see, we've seen Mordecai, but now what we see here is Esther. I want you to think about what just happened here. Instead of spending three days to go beautify herself and to go impress the king, like we've already seen that, right? We know the, the beginning of the story. Like Esther doesn't stand a chance. If she has any chance, she needs to go do everything she can to woo the king in her favor. She doesn't do that. Do you know what she's going to look like after three days of fasting with no water? And She's probably not going to look the best. She's probably going to look worn out, tired. But here's, what, here's the point. We've come to the conclusion here, and what we see is that Esther's decided to let control of things go. And she's placing her hopes fully on God. And so she says this. I'm going to go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's ready to act, even if it costs her own life. One commentator describes Esther's response this way. Esther realizes that life in the palace without God isn't worth it. In fact, Esther realizes that life itself without God isn't worth it. He continues, for the first time, Esther is living in such a way that if God doesn't show up, she will perish. Do you realize that this is the kind of life that Jesus is calling us to? It's a life of faith. He's calling us to live a life that if God doesn't show up, like, like, I get plan. Like, you guys talk to me. Like, I, can, I, I get, I'm not talking about being unwise and foolish. And I get planning and, 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 but, but we're called to a life of faith, which means we always don't see. It's not like, man, wait until you can connect all the dots and you can almost guarantee victory and then go obey God. It's living a life of faith that if God doesn't show up, we will perish. And so what does Esther and Mordecai's response have to do with us today? The author has drawn us into the story. And the author is asking us to consider how is God providentially working in each of our lives to live a life of faith where God must show up. And so here's what I want to do. I want to call each of us to respond today in this way. Rise up with rendered hearts, risking it all for God. Rise up with rendered hearts, risking it all for God. I want to take the next 10 minutes or so as we wrap up, and I want to unpack this point here, these three little nuggets. And the first one is this, rise up to the occasion. Both Esther and Mordecai illustrate the fact that divine providence doesn't negate human responsibility. It doesn't negate us to respond and to act with courage and resolve. 
hear me today. There is a purpose for everything in your life. The good, the bad, the ugly, where you work, who you know, where you live, the opportunities that are presented before you, they're not coincidences. God is at work. No matter how you arrive, where you arrive in life right now, it's never too late to rise up and embrace all that God has for you and to honor God with your life. Hey, let me ask you this. Where in your life, listen to me, guys. Where in your life do you hear God saying, who knows whether God has planned, has placed you in this house, in this job, in this church, in this community, you fill in the blank. Like, where's God asking you that? How do, how, how do you not know that he's placed you for this very purpose, for this very reason, for such a time as this? Maybe today God is calling you. There's an opportunity before you. I don't know what it is. I don't know all of you, but, but what we see here is that God's working and that we need eyes of faith to see him. And maybe some of you need just to be encouraged today to say, yes, that's it, God at work, and I'm going to step out in faith. And I want to rise up to the occasion for what God has placed me. The second challenge here is to rend your hearts to God. You may be asking, where do you see that in the text, John? I don't see anything here about rending your hearts to God. Well, a number of scholars have drawn attention that there's a connection between this passage in Joel chapter 2. Now, in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, I think we got on the screen up here, it says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. That's repeated what says in Esther 4, verse 3. It's, if you were to look at the Hebrew, it's almost word for word, the exact phrase. The only other place that occurs is Joel 2.12. And so a number of commenters suggest that there's an intentional echo happening here between Esther and Joel, and that what the author's doing is the author's asking us to read and interpret Esther 4 in light of Joel chapter 2. Now, let me argue the case a little stronger here. Here's the rest of that Joel 2.12. After saying, like, return to me with all your heart, fasting, mourning, weeping, this is what Joel 2.13 and following says. And it says, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Mordecai ripped his garments. But what, here's what Esther's showing us here is that they weren't just, it wasn't just something on the outside. That their response was, was the response that Joel was asking here of true repentance that their hearts were ripped, were rendered, and were given to God. He continues, it says, return to the Lord your God. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Look at verse 14. Who knows? Have you heard that anywhere in Esther? Yeah, that's what Mordecai says to Esther. Who knows whether you're in this very position for such a time as this? We see it in Joel. Who knows whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him and a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And then verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. 
call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her children. Do you see anybody in Esther blowing a trumpet? That's Esther. She's blowing the trumpet. Go gather everybody. Go gather the Jews. And she calls them to do the very same thing that Joel 2 says here. And it was to say, consecrate a fast. I'm getting excited about this because you see the similarities here and the linguistic connection. So what's going on? This is an opportunity for the Jewish people in exile for their sin to repent, to return to the Lord and to see him relent from the pending disaster of the annihilation of the Jews. In fact, we're to read the Jews' response in Esther as the type of repentance that Joel calls for in chapter 2, verses 12 and following. God wants your hearts. That was the point of Joel 2. Don't just look good on the outside. Look, you can, you can wear sackcloth and put ashes on and have a heart that is far from God. The Pharisees know how to do that really well. God wants your heart. For some of you, it's to respond to the gospel for the first time today. I, I don't know where everybody is in relation to Jesus. You know, how do I get to Jesus from Esther? Well, Jesus is the one from the Jews. God saved the Jews so that Jesus could be the one. And you know what? Jesus is kind of like the golden scepter. Like Jesus came and he didn't say, if I perish, he says, when I perish, I'm laying my life down. If you look to me, you believe in me, kind of like the golden scepter, you will be forgiven and receive eternal Life. Some of you, I want to call you today, like God wants your heart and your first step is to confess your sin, repent of your sin and, and come to the Lord and believe in Jesus. For others, it's, I mean, where is God calling you with all of your heart to trust him? That's what we see in Mordecai and Esther. We see Mordecai coming to the place where he's saying, Esther, even if you don't respond, all of my hope is in God. He will provide and save us. And now you see Esther saying, if I perish, I perish, but all of my hope is in God. God wants everything you have. Render your heart to God. And then finally, risk it all for God. Where do I see this in the text? I think this one's pretty clear. If I perish, I perish. When you renounce everything to follow Jesus, Think about it. When Jesus is your life, when Jesus is your security, you can risk everything because you're truly free. When our hearts are rendered to God, when we identify with Jesus, it's going to energize your life. This will energize your life. Look, God doesn't call us to be foolish, but he does call us to take risks for the sake of the gospel. When Jesus says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, that's going to require some risk. If the gospel is going to get to places like where Joel Smith was, it's going to require people saying, I'm going to risk money, time, family. It's going to require risk. 
Where is God calling you to take risk for the sake of the gospel? Where is he calling you today? Do you know why I'm here today? I'm here today because Lee and I were fed up with boring Christianity that didn't change our life and had no impact on anybody else's. We were done with that. And so like we moved to Boston 10 years ago away from all of our family. We took a risk because we're, we're running after God and God's saying, go. And we've adopted two girls and we're foster parents. Why? Because we're done with boring Christianity. We want to live a life where God, we hear the Spirit of God, and we chase and we run after it. And you know what? We lost a lot of things because of that, but we gained everything. I want to challenge you to consider taking risks in three specific areas. One, I want to challenge you to take risks with your money. Like, you didn't come here today so that I could pat you on the back and say, hey, everything's going great, right? Like, God's calling us as pastors to help us think and chase after Jesus. Money causes more problems than many other things in the world. And one of the ways that we render our hearts, Jesus says, man, store up treasures in heaven. Like, I don't know what anybody gives, but I'll, if you want to take a risk today, take me up on this. Go, go say, okay, God, I'm going to start giving at least 10% of my income away. You know, but, but how are all the numbers going to match up? I'm calling, live a life that says give. Lee and I, from the very beginning of our life, our marriage, we made a decision. We're going to give at least 10% of our income away from the very beginning. And we prioritize that to our local church. And so we give to our local church. Even when it's hard, we give to our local church. Even as a pastor, we give over 10% to our local church. And then we look for opportunities to say, I want to give to things like the Thanksgiving meal giveaway or to Multiply March or to somebody in my community group who's got need. You go read the early church. It wasn't a boring Christianity. They're selling their possessions and they're giving away to many who had need. Like we, church, if, if we don't take risks, the gospel's not going to spread to the ends of the earth. Some of you need to take some risks with your money. I'm going to brag on my wife. She's not sitting here, so I want to do it. She just got promoted to a new job as a teacher in the Brooks. And you know what she came to me? She said, she said, John, I've been wanting to talk to you about all the things with our additional income that I can give. I love that about my wife. She's not creating the list of these are all the things I want to buy. She's like, let me tell you and talk to you about all the things I want to give to. And so a risky life is saying, I'm going to set my income. No matter how much I make, this is how much I need to live. And I'm going to go give the rest of it away. Take risk in evangelism. Don't wait to share the gospel with somebody when it feels safe. The third area, take risk in ministry. Let me ask you this. What ministry opportunity right now is before your face that God's saying you need to step out and take a risk in? What person is there in your life where God is saying, you need to go pursue that person and read the Bible and pray with them? Where in ministry do you need to take a risk? You know what? This church doesn't exist if people don't take risks. I look up in the left corner here. You guys don't know this person, but Jessica Miller, wave up there, Jessica. One of our dear friends was one of the three families that moved here to plant Redemption Hill Church. 
If the millers don't plant well, this doesn't happen. We're here because of families who took risks. And I don't want to be a part of a church that we just wait and for everything to line up. We're going to be a church that's seeking the presence of God and we're going to move out and we're going to take risks because that's who our God is. From the very beginning, we've quoted William Carey who says, expect great things from God, go attempt great things for God. John Piper says this, if we wait until we have success in our back pocket, we won't need God anymore. Are we a church that's living in such a way that says, God's got to show up in 2021 or I don't know what's going to happen. That's the type of church God wants us to be. And so as we wrap up, the band's up here. We're going to sing a a song called Oceans. A while back, when Lee and I were just praying and wrestling through some things, Lee said, you know what? I want to throw some lyrics on our our dining room wall because it's going to daily remind us of the life we're called to live. And it's the lyrics of this song we're about to sing. And, And they say this, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you may call me. And that's what I'm asking you to do today, church. I'm asking you to pray, Spirit, lead me. And the Spirit will lead you. And it continues, take me deeper than my feet could ever wander and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Look, I don't want to hear the excuses. Esther said, but but Mordecai, I'm going to die. Mordecai, go. If you don't go, you're here for such a time as this. God, we've got to move past the excuses. We've got to move past the barriers. We've got to say, God, I'm going to lead. I'm going to follow you. You lead me. We want to be a church. I, I want so much for you guys. Individually, I want so much for us as a church. Let's be a church that, that believes that God's going to show up. And so we say, God, lead us. Father, God, may we be a church that confidently says, if I perish, I perish. God, we want to be a church that expects great things and attempts great things. And, and, and so, God, I don't know what, what all the attempting is going to be. I, I don't know where you're leading all the individuals. But, God, we want to hear as, God, as, we, as we sing, as we pray, God, give us faith to step out into the ocean. And God, use us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.